if Intel thinks they're going to be able to just turn the switch and all of a sudden become a contract fab, I, I think they've got another thing coming. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's uh, go. I'm going to cover oil and gas quickly and then talk interest rates. And then we're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk NVIDIA and other, other things that we think are uh, uh, making, uh, making progress. As far as oil prices go, the agreement with the uh, uh, Abu Dhabi or the Emirates is a positive. It was, it was interpreted by the market as being a negative uh, because um, procedurally, uh, the OPEC plus committee, basically OPEC plus Russia, had adjourned because they couldn't get uh, the Emirates to agree to an extension beyond next April because uh, they wanted an increased baseline in production. And <clears throat> the concern, which we shared, was that Saudi Arabia, when, when they don't get their own way, uh, can always have the threat of uh, producing a lot more oil than their quota. And <clears throat> in fact, that's what happened in 2020 with Russia. Uh, and uh, ahead of the pandemic or ahead of the lockdowns. Uh, That didn't happen. And uh, by negotiating back and forth between the Saudis and the Abu Dhabi and uh, uh, the Russians, they came up with a solution, announced a solution after a uh, OPEC meeting, virtual meeting Sunday uh, with the, yeah, they, I mean, OPEC's home is Vienna, so they said it was based in Vienna, but they're all uh, calling in, zooming in, or WebExing in, or whatnot. Uh, and uh, so uh, the result was they went back to the original plan, which was to produce, to meet monthly, but <clears throat> each month they would review their plan, which was to <clears throat> produce an additional 400,000 barrels uh, per month. Uh, and they'd have a catch-up meeting before uh, each month's nominations were done. Now, the nominations for August had already happened, so that extra 400,000 barrels will not see the market until September. And their logic is that uh, if they do that for the remainder of this year and into next year, They'll, they'll recover the full amount of the production restraint, which, as I recall, was like 8 million barrels a day. And they've already recovered some and 400 a month, you know, up until sometime next year would get them back to where uh, <clears throat> they started uh, pre-pandemic. Um, the old market is down. Uh, I, I think that the main concern now is do you have lockdowns, you know, on a worldwide basis with that would affect oil demand uh, <clears throat> because of the variant, the Delta variant or whatever variant is, uh, has come to the fore. Uh, and, you know, time will tell 
Um, the other significant issue on oil demand is not just, you know, in our country with our friends and neighbors, but has uh, have patterns changed uh, because of the lockdown. And uh, time will tell with that. But we, we think that the oil market is kind of undersupplied, that now that uh, the OPEC countries have uh, agreed, uh, Abu Dhabi made the point that it's spent a lot of money increasing its capability to produce, and that needs to be recognized if the agreement was going to be extended beyond next April. That's settled. So uh, I think the supply-demand balance in the oil market, subject to lockdowns for the variant, uh, variants not getting worse, is pretty well settled. The gas market, because it's been very hot and it's summer, um, it's been very strong. Uh, there's a chance, I think, later this week or next week, the near months will get to $4, which is an extraordinary achievement considering that the lowest gas, natural gas prices in both LNG and in uh, U.S. gas pricing were uh, in two decades were last year. So it's quite a significant bounce back. Uh, it's helped by very good LNG demand. LNG pricing this last year was four dollars in <clears throat> in Asia, and you know maybe three fifty in Europe. This year it's like thirteen dollars in Asia, eleven fifty in Europe. So that's helped enormously. Uh, also, power demand because of uh, high temperatures helps. Um, is this sustainable to get natural gas at more than $3 on a consistent basis? Because like the oil market, there's a lot of backwardation. Uh, possibly. Uh, will there be discipline amongst natural gas producers? Possibly. Um, is, uh, is natural gas threatened as a power fuel by renewables? Uh, you know, once you have wind in or solar in, the variable cost to produce them is zero or very low. So, uh, yes, that is an issue. Um, are there natural gas companies to buy? Interestingly enough, the only remaining ones are <clears throat> the Marcellus companies, EQT being the largest, uh, Antero, Range, uh, uh, Southwestern, uh, CNX, uh, <clears throat> Those companies are all in reasonable shape. We've agreed to take a lot of Southwest stock for our Indigo position, and we are residual stockholders. We helped start Antero. Uh, I think both of those companies are in reasonable shape. EQT is the largest. Uh, I think it's being run fairly well. Cabot was the best. Cabot agreed to merge with Simrex. Their stock hasn't really improved like the others have. It's still in the $16, $17 range, and they agreed to merge out of basin with Simrex, which I think the the reaction to that is pretty pretty uh, you know not 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 very negative, but amongst people who follow these stocks, it's 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 not considered a positive. People like to have pure plays. You know, if I want to buy, if I want to invest in the Delaware, I'll invest in Simrex. If I want to invest in a Marcel's company, I'd I'd rather have Cabot on its own. Um, the motivation there probably was Cabot has had these extraordinarily low costs. I mean, 20, 30 cents per MCF. They had proof of reserves. But <clears throat> most of their 
properties are in one county, Susquehanna County, and uh, they have lower Marcellus, which has better reservoir characteristics as compared to upper Marcellus. Now they're in the process of uh, running out of lower Marcellus uh, 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 well potential, so they're going to have to start drilling upper. Uh, and you know the Cabot Management Board decides to merge with the merge. Maybe it'll work great, but uh, <clears throat> the uh, you know is, is there more money to be made in these things? Possibly, uh, but remember that like oil, gas people hedge. So you know the average gas price, even though the near month is like three fifty or three sixty, three seventy. Uh, uh, because of the hedging, you may only be realizing 280 or 290. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and then keep in mind also in the Biden administration, much more difficult to permit pipelines to take the gas from the Marcellus to, uh, uh the Gulf Coast or to the Southeast of Florida. So you can get situations where, uh, the price in the Southwest, say Henry Hub or Houston Chip Channel is very high. And the price in the Marcellus isn't so high because you, there isn't pipe capacity to get it there. Um, so uh, <clears throat> I think there's some potential there. I, I do think there's some potential for oil companies that can they can uh, increase their production, spending only you know 60 or 70 percent of their cash flow. Uh, and you know, so it's not totally uninteresting from an investment point of view, but. Uh, so the thing to do is to, I think, keep positions you're in, uh, uh, add positions if you're not in them, but, you know, you may have a better chance later. Uh, in terms of interest rates, which plays into this, um, they, they, there, there is a theory out there that we will have inflation, uh, that we monetize too much debt. When I say we, I mean not just our central bank and government, but central banks and governments worldwide. Um, the, um, the, 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 the U.S. Treasury 10-year rate, base rate uh, in our economy, got as high as 175 February, and it traded all the way down uh, earlier this week to like 115, 120. Um, it, the consumer price index uh, for uh, – latest reading month to month is up 5%. I mean, even if you assume that there's some transitory things in there, used car prices and, and, uh, uh, and rents and whatnot that may quiet down later, still, we seem to have established an inflation rate that's in excess of the 2% Fed target. Now, the Fed governors, when they give talks, say that uh, they're not necessarily going to curtail a quantitative easing, buying 120 billion of, of, of uh, bonds, 80 billion of, of U.S. Uh, Treasury securities, and 40 billion of mortgage securities every month, just because inflation rate is somewhat over their two percent rate. They've, their point is they've been trying to get inflation up to two percent since the Great Recession in 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 uh, 08 09. So <clears throat> they could stomach it being three percent, you know, over two percent for a while. When they when they see the reading of five percent, they say transitory. Uh, who knows? Um, the uh, 
But the interesting thing is that at a 120, or I think it's bounced to 130, if you assume uh, U.S. Treasury rate, if you assume 3% inflation, uh, <clears throat> that means uh, you have a negative interest rate. Uh, uh, if you own those securities, you're, you're, you're not keeping up with inflation. You're actually losing money. Um, the, uh, that will probably not persist. I mean, if you look back long enough, 50, 60, 100 years, you'll see that there is a real interest rate ranging from 1% to 2%. In other words, if inflation's 2%, you'd expect that U.S. Treasury rate, 10-year rate, to be 35 or 4 or something. So is it artificially low because of quantitative easing? Yes. Why didn't it go further than 175? Or why is it 120 now? Um, in our capital markets, there's, uh, uh, there's the ability, if you're, you know, if you're a reporting dealer, uh, uh, if you're a hedge fund, to borrow money in the repo market, which typically is overnight lending against security, which is typically just a little bit more than the Fed's fund, Fed funds rate, and invest it in, in 10-year, 10-year bonds or five-year bonds or whatnot. Well, if you're borrowing at like 25 basis points, and you're buying 10-year bonds at one and a quarter, uh, <clears throat> you know, you got a 1% carry. Now, you're, if, if all of a sudden long-term interest rates go up and your bonds go down, you've got a capital loss. Uh, and, and you can hedge those. In other words, you can lever those positions 10 times, 20 times, whatnot, to keep themselves from losing money with the... Uh, Paper going down, uh, they, uh, lots of option strategies are used. And this is a very large market, very active. And one of the explanations for the 175 becoming 120 is uh, a lot of people, in effect, were short. In other words, rather than being balanced, they were short, uh, expecting interest rates to go higher. And when that wasn't working, they had to do covering. And the covering uh, caused uh, that rate to come down. Uh, <clears throat> what does it mean for us as equity investors where you're trying to, you know, own a dozen stocks or not more than a dozen stocks? You want to own things that you think have a better and even chance to double in five years, which is a 15% rate of return. Uh, the <clears throat> you have to be concerned that while we may not, ha we may or may not have cause inflation with this monetizing of the debt by in other words if if the federal if the if the federal reserve buys uh you know a billion and a half of securities a year and we're running a deficit of i think last year was something in excess of two trillion i, I meant on the on the debt you know buying a, a trillion and a half securities not a billion and a half trillion and a half uh, what are we doing uh, <clears throat> We're in effect financing the deficit spending. I mean, how can that not be inflationary? If it doesn't show up in the consumer price index, the wholesale price index, where has it showed up? Well, how about the, you know, with very low interest rates for mortgages, what about the price of houses? Uh, uh, what about the stock market? So <clears throat> while we may not have had inflation that you'd expect, 
in the basket that constitutes the consumer price index, you know, there has been inflation in asset value. What does the Federal Reserve, what do uh, um, <clears throat> economists who, who work for the current administration worry about? For the longest time, you know, decade and a half, two decades, they've been worried about deflation. When the 08-09 recession came, Great Recession, the biggest economic contraction since uh, since uh, uh, before World War II and the Great Depression, so they called it the Great Recession, they were more worried about deflation. And I'm talking about not just us, but the European Central Bank, the Japan Central Bank, and the, and the People's Bank in China. They were more worried about deflation than inflation. And they're still worried about it. How could they not? Because that was COVID. COVID was another economic event, like the 08-09 recession, uh, where economic activity declined by you know 10 or 15 percentage points. So uh, will our central bank, the European central bank, the Chinese, the Japanese, will they reverse course? Will they tighten up? Will they go from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening? Certainly they will at some time. Is predicting when that's going to happen is tricky. Will there be downward pressure on the equities, the, the stocks that we own? Absolutely. If if there's a, a position you own and you want to add to it, does it make some sense to sit with the cash and think that you may see it for less later? I think so, because it's kind of inevitable that we'll have some kind of <clears throat> readjustment of interest rates and a revaluation of equity. How long will you have to wait? Hard to say. Uh, uh, will you, uh, is it comfortable waiting? No. Uh, is it comfortable? I mean, we had a very down day, uh, uh, not yesterday, but the day before. Is it comfortable buying when things are headed down? No, it's not. So it's not the easiest thing to, uh, uh, <clears throat> to, Hold equities. It's not the easiest thing to buy new equities or to add positions, but this is a time where where either outcome is possible. I mean, you could have continued low interest rates and continued increase in equity values. You could have a you know 10, 15, 20 percent uh, uh, decline in equity values. Uh, we don't know when. Uh, the central banks, and they'll probably do this in kind of a coordinated way, start to stop monetizing so much debt, uh, so much of a deficit. Uh, so it's just hard to say. Uh, in the meantime, those who own equities, most of the people on the phone have, you know, have more than double their money every five years. So, uh, you worry about losing that value. Yep. Uh, is, What's your protection against this? Work on cash flow. Own companies that have good cash flow so they don't need to finance. You don't get diluted. Uh, uh, a company that pays the dividend that increases it every year is, is a good, a good thing to look for. But there have been some very good investments that don't pay dividends. I mean, just three that, uh, <clears throat> hold a non, on energy portfolio, you know, away from Oak Cliff, uh, Amazon, you know, up seven times, doesn't pay a dividend. Alphabet, you know, up three or four times, doesn't pay a dividend. CarMax, up 
six or seven times doesn't pay a dividend. So paying a dividend that increases every year, I think, is the right way to run a business. But there's some very good businesses where uh, cash flow has increased significantly, free cash flow, cash flow after all CapEx, and they don't pay dividends. So it just, you know, you have to be a little flexible. And with being a little flexible, uh, Mike and I talked earlier today about NVIDIA. NVIDIA has now <clears throat> got a market cap that makes it one of the 10 largest market caps in our stock market. Uh, it <clears throat> It is... Uh, doing great. I mean, if you look at the, I, I guess the 630 results won't be out for a, a little bit, but if you, I did a careful read of the March 31, 10Q of the last weekend, I mean, NVIDIA is doing really, really well, but it is really, really expensive. And uh, with that, uh, over to Mike for uh, commentary on NVIDIA. Hi, Han. Thanks. And uh, yeah, we keep coming back to NVIDIA and uh, hopefully, you all don't think that we're just myopic, only looking at one one stock. It's just probably the most exciting, at least from my perspective, the most exciting uh, company today. Uh, it ties back to those of you that get my weekly email. We talked a little bit about the, the different levels of industrial revolution and why technology is important to that and where NVIDIA sits in this, this next kind of phase. The, okay, so the concept of Moore's Law is every two years, the number of components per integrated circuit should double. Um, it's really kind of a self-imposed uh, uh, guideline for the semiconductor industry that started with uh, Gordon Moore of uh, Intel. Um, we are getting kind of, it's getting harder and harder to get there, but we've, we've, we've gotten there with companies like ASML, this, their EUV technology has made that possible. We've seen... Uh, a consolidation in the number of um, manufacturers and the transition to a fab model rather than an IDM model like Intel historically has, has run. Um, these things are all making the industry uh, more powerful. And at the same time, we're becoming more and more dependent on uh, semiconductors in general. So, you know, about a year ago, we took a deep dive through all the different equipment manufacturers, all of which would have been fantastic investments, as well as uh, as well as Nvidia and some of the other designers. Um, so we're seeing a. This is part of, at least in my perspective, um, semiconductors are part of a very long curve of innovation, and what's going to drive a lot of the fundamental technological, societal, and geopolitical changes over the course of the next you know, 20 to 50 years. So we're, we're in the midst of that, that phase and NVIDIA, in, at least in my opinion, is, is coming through um, as the potential leader in that space. Yeah, and the question is, uh, Intel, which was the king of the hill, can they recover? Now, what they're proposing is that they uh, make not only their own chip designs, but other people's, uh, in effect, copy Taiwan Semiconductor. And uh, there's no question that there's new leadership there. Uh, there's no question that they have a huge advantage as an investment over Taiwan Semiconductor because their fabs are diversified. They have a fair amount of that capacity here in the U.S., 
Um, uh, but um, turning a uh, you know an ocean liner around is hard, and uh, the the I don't think there's too much credibility uh, that that the management has the revised management the the fellow who they brought back uh, you know may look like a hero two three four years from now if it works but uh, and 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 Intel is not expensive but uh, as I try you know in our brief talks before these 330 calls Wednesday to uh, uh, get Mike to think about the idea of of alternatives to uh, to Nvidia uh, or alternatives to uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, I make very little progress on Intel. And with that, Mike will explain some of his logic there. Sure. And this is actually pretty timely because last week, Taiwan Semiconductor had their earnings call. And that earnings call is enlightening because it actually touched on some things that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks about the cost of standing up a fab and the depreciation schedule. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor depreciates their fabs over a period of five years. However, they manufacture for a much longer period than that. Um, in fact, the 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 five-year depreciation schedule is probably, uh, it, you know, they're, they're, they're very profitable for 10 years or sometimes longer. In the case of today, we're seeing a lot of um, older fabs becoming more profitable. Now, Intel's pivot, which is probably the right business strategy to, uh, to, to separate out its design business and run uh, separate separate fab business. It's probably the right business strategy. It's just that it's not going to be an easy road. Taiwan Semiconductor started this fab model um, with the purpose and the idea that they're going to build really strong relationships with their customers and meet their customers' needs. What that means is, and what that what came up on that conference call that was really important, is that they aren't going to jack up the prices in 2021 on their customers because all of a sudden there's a global semiconductor supply. Analysts were very disappointed that their gross margins were as low as they were, which kind of shows you how many of the analysts aren't even aware of what drives gross margins in the fab space. Gross margins are driven mostly by depreciation. Um, yes, Taiwan Semiconductor could have raised prices on their customers, but they're more interested in the long-term relationship with that customer. So for them to go and charge them more would be counter to their entire ethos of that company. Now, Intel, on the other hand, is making this pivot rather opportunistically. Again, nothing wrong with that, but the market is going to look at them differently than a Taiwan semiconductor. So when Apple looks for a long-term supplier relationship, they want someone they can trust that's been historically able to deliver uh, large quantities of product in relatively short times at the, the very leading edge, they're not going to go to an Intel. Um, they're going to go to a Taiwan Semiconductor. And as these uh, leading, in tech, leading edge technologies get more and more difficult and expensive to stand up, those uh, customer relationships are going to be more important. So I think what the, the worry for Intel is that they're opportunistically pursuing a market, meaning the non-leading edge fab, 
that will be very competitive within a relatively short period of time. Uh, by adding more capacity on those nodes, the price of those nodes will go down. They will be still in the process of depreciating those fabs when um, when Taiwan Semiconductor at that point will be fully depreciated. Your marginal cost per additional chip is near zero. It will be very difficult to compete profitably um, from that perspective. So in order for Intel to really be successful, I think they need to make a leap beyond where the current technologies um, are taking us as far as going smaller on chips or figuring out another way to solve the ultimate need for data processing power uh, for semiconductors in a different way. Um, and there are companies uh, trying to do that. I mean, I read a great story about a company that um, instead of trying to make the number of the transistors on each chip smaller, they're just making bigger chips. So 200 millimeter chips are gigantic. But by doing that, there's technically pushing the, the limits of Moore's law by just making bigger chips. And that's fine for data centers and supercomputers and stuff like that. It's, it doesn't work for your iPhone, uh, but there certainly is a market for that. So um, all that is to say, it. I, I actually, you, you, you mentioned that Intel seems cheap. And right now, if you look at on, at least the last time that I, uh, built a model around Intel. I've got their free cash yield at like eight and a half percent, but I also have their forecasted free cash yield for 2021 at 1.1%. So I wouldn't call them cheap by any means. I actually think they're probably the most expensive semiconductor stock um, out there unless things change dramatically. Yeah. And the thing with, that would be taking the free cash flow down is some deterioration in margin, but CapEx, because as of we, we're, you know, we're determined, uh, Mike is, I am, to do our free cash flow calculations based on all CapEx. So to the extent that they're going into a very substantial pro program to build capacity to do, uh, to try to copy uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, making, making chips to other people's designs, that will, uh, that will, that will cause their free cash flow to be lower. With that, we've run through the hour. I think, uh, uh, we'll, We'll, uh, uh, we won't take as much time. Uh, it'll be more Mike and less me next week. Uh, I think I ground through about 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but we'll reverse that next week. And in the meantime, uh, everyone stay healthy and uh, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.